Well, we are going to be this morning in one of the most familiar Christmas passages. So it's Luke 2. If you'd turn there, pick up reading it, verse 8, and read down through 21, though we're really spending our time here on the angel's announcement. You know this well. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, there is no little joy in our heart when we read this passage and consider the reality of what happened in history on this day, this announcement and the coming of Christ. Lord, we speak about it frequently. We celebrate it every year at this time. But Lord, perhaps we're just going through the motions. Perhaps we're not really experiencing the full reality of what it means to know You, to have Your grace change our lives, to know Christ. Lord, be real to us this day. We thank You for Your Word, and let us indeed uh, understand it and appropriate it and apply it in every way to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I suppose one of my favorite movies of all time is Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, Those that know me well know I have a hard time watching a movie more than twice, unless it has music in it. Then you can watch it time and time and time again. And perhaps my favorite scene in that movie is, um, I won't try to sing it to you, but if I were a rich man. That's marvelous, isn't it? Well, just following that scene, there's a group of men that are gathered in a particular place, and Tevye comes walking up, you know, pulling his cart because his, his, his horse got a lame foot. And at that point, uh, 
another man, Avram, he comes, he comes running up with his paper, one of the few men in the village that could read. He comes racing up with his paper about some piece of news that he just read, and there's kind of this babbling going on. It's kind of this humorous little dialogue there. And finally, they compel him to read uh, this headline, this news piece, and he says, in a village called Rajenka, all the Jews were evicted, forced to leave their homes. And someone says, well, for what reason? It doesn't say. And there's more chit-chat, more babbling. And another man says, what's the matter with you? Why don't you ever bring us some good news? And Avram says, it's not my fault. I just read it. Well, unlike Avram, you see the herald, the angel is a herald of good news. And indeed, this uh, succinct declaration that we know so well is really the, the perfect summation, is it not, of the significance of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. It is good news of a great joy for all the people because into the darkness of this corrupt and violent and sin, sin-filled world, this light was coming, this true light that brings peace and joy and hope and love. Well, I want you to see, first of all, that the contrast in these verses, starting at verse 8, is, is startling, deliberately so. First off, we have these shepherds out tending their sheep, which was, of course, a common enough event back then. We don't, have, we don't have shepherds in our country that I know of, but it was a common enough event back then. And shepherds, you might not know, were a lower class of people. They weren't esteemed. It was a job that nobody really wanted, unless I suppose your dad was a shepherd. It was a difficult job because the work was hard. They were out in the elements. They were subject to certain dangers, being outside. They sometimes had to live in tents when they took their flocks away from home to find greener pastures and and water. And we're told that these shepherds were out at night. They were out in the field at night. So again, they were away from home. Shepherds often kept their flocks away from home, again, to graze, to feed uh, from April to about November during the good season. And of course, nighttime was a particularly dangerous time for the sheep and for the shepherds. They, uh, that was the time when thieves and wolves, of course, would come under the cover of darkness, and they would come to harm the sheep and steal the sheep ultimately. And so the shepherds would, would take turns. They would keep watch over their, their flocks at, at night, keeping a, a watchful, skilled eye out for dangers. And though I've never been a shepherd, I can imagine that if I were there, even if I was a professional shepherd, I suppose being dark, dangers lurking, you don't really know, you know, this is not the days of, of flashlights and streetlights and, and whatnot. They had stars, of course. But I imagine their nerves were a little bit more on edge and, and they would be alert to any any noise or, or any movement, anything that might cause them to react, to rush to protect the sheep from any and all dangers. And so in that setting, suddenly something happens. 
okay? This angel of the Lord, this divine messenger, just appears out of nowhere. And he comes to bring this revelation of the redemption that, that God's about to accomplish. And we, we see that when the angel appeared, the glory of the Lord shone around them. What that looked like, I really don't know. But I have no doubt, again, in the quiet nighttime scene, watching the sheep, hopefully everything's settled and good, suddenly the glory of the Lord shines around them. No doubt they were startled, confused, and certainly afraid. Well, this is kind of a glorious Old Testament scene where the glory of God comes upon people. But what does it mean? Well, it's interesting, um, this idea of this, this glory shining, uh, the word there is, is perilampo. And I give that to you only because you can figure out what that means, even in English, lamp something that shines, a brightness, okay, and peri or peri like perimeter, okay, so it's a shining around, and the word only occurs twice in the New Testament here, and of course, then in Acts chapter 26, verse 13, where Paul is, is making a defense, he's recounting of his, uh, his experience on the Damascus Road when he was going to persecute believers, and there also this bright light shone from heaven. And he said, O king, I saw on the light, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, if you can imagine, that shone around me. So both times that word occurs in the New Testament, Luke uses it to describe this bright shining light from heaven, this light of God's presence. Now the stem of that word, this is a good Greek lesson, so Jeff is really into this stuff. So hopefully you guys can stay awake here. But the, 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 the stem of that word, of course, is lamp or lampo, okay? It's used six times. And I tell you this lesson because I think its use in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 is particularly interesting. It occurs twice there in that one verse, the word lamp or lampo. It says, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness, referring to what? Referring back to creation, Okay. So, God who said light shall shine out of darkness, that's the first time, is the one who has shown in our hearts the second time to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The second time referring to what? Redemption. So, Paul is, uses the entrance of light at the time of creation when God said, let there be light. He uses that as an analogy for the entrance of the knowledge of the glory of God in the lives of those who welcomed it. So this angel is revealing something deeply profound and obviously quite remarkable. So the light accompanied by his announcement is the, the certain revelation that God is coming to common, humble people in common, humble circumstances to bring them into the knowledge of the glory of God. And I hope right now you're thinking immediately of the prophet Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9, verse 2. I think we're meant to, to re remember that because that 
this text informs us that that prophecy is about to be fulfilled. You know it well. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land, the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. And by the way, in the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is mostly in Hebrew, of course, normally or, or originally, is also the same word, lamp or lampo, okay? So something truly incredible is about to happen. But what does it mean to dwell in a land of deep darkness? Well, you're familiar with darkness as a metaphor for the ignorance in which people live, all people live by nature because of sin. And because we by nature suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. We are by nature foolish with regard to the things of God. The Bible says no one understands, no one seeks God, okay? No one knows God. Satan is called the prince of darkness. And all people by nature are essentially if you will, the, the offspring of the children of darkness, okay, we are foolish. We are full of sin. And when Paul makes his defense before Herod Agrippa, which I alluded to just a moment ago in Acts chapter 26, he testified that the mission Jesus gave him was what? So that the Gentiles may turn from darkness to light. Then he says, and from the power of Satan to God. Paul was a Hebrew. And, you know, if you took my Bible survey course a while ago, in poetry, that Hebrew poetry is noted by its parallelism, okay? Sometimes that's contrasting parallelism. Sometimes it's saying the same thing in two different ways. That's what's going on here, okay? Paul says that the Gentiles may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So to, to go from darkness to light is to be delivered from Satan's power and to be restored to God, okay? And the essential need of mankind from the Bible's perspective is to know God, is to be reconciled to God. We were created, mankind was created in God's image, male and female, created in God's image to live in fellowship with His, with, with his Creator. But you know the story of Genesis well. Sin... Sin destroyed that fellowship. Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden. And we became blind. Mankind became blind to the God who made us into the world. And sin turns us in, inward into ourselves instead of outward facing God. What are the two great commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. Right? Instead we turn inward and are self-concerned and ultimately self-destroying because we don't live as we are meant to live in this world. And so the problem becomes, and I love how uh, J.I. Packer spoke about this in his classic book, Knowing God. He said, Dr. Packer wrote, the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. But God does what? But God delivers 
from darkness, but God delivers from sin, but God delivers from all evil. Those who believe, because Jesus is light. Peter said that, right? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, out of ignorance, out of rebellion, out of bondage to the evil one, and into the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So how profound is this? This ancient promise is about to be fulfilled. And what was the angel's response? Not surprisingly, they were filled with fear. It literally says they were frightened with great fear. It uses the same word, the same stem in a verb and noun form. Twice, they were frightened with, with great fear. They were scared out of their wits. Who wouldn't be? Think about the setting as I tried to describe it, as I tried to imagine it, okay? They were scared because the glory of the Lord suddenly is all around them. This is really the, the, the terror or the fear of the Lord in the hands of an angry God. Well, many years before that, a certain Adam was also afraid when God became present in the place where he was. And we, we read that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve, God's creatures, heard the sound, not this frightening bright light, but the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden as he had done many times before. This was a common occurrence, by the way. And um, Adam and Eve weren't at that point jumping up for joy, they weren't running to hug their heavenly father, okay? No, it says the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Why? Why would they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God? Well, we know. He says, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, but something had changed because of their sin. And he said, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. See, he hid because he was afraid. He was afraid because of his, his nakedness, because he was now exposed as a sinner before a holy God. And he was full of the shame of his sin. See, before he sinned, he had no shame, and therefore he had no fear. We're told that the man and his wife were both naked, and we're told they were not ashamed. They could stand before each other. They could stand before a holy God and be without shame, and therefore without fear. But sin brings shame. It, it, be, it, it brings an awareness of our unacceptability, our nakedness, okay? And so be, because sin brings Shame, it also brings fear of exposure. We, we hide from God. We try to, like Adam and Eve. We hide from one another. Oh, we do. You want proof? Let me ask you one question. You don't need to answer this question. To how many people in the entire world 
do you reveal your most, your innermost, most secret, most private thoughts and perhaps sins? Maybe, maybe if you have a really, really good marriage, maybe to your spouse, but probably not. Maybe to a really close friend, but probably not. So the question is, why do we all hide our innermost secrets? You know the answer. Fear of rejection. Fear of being known who we really are. Fear that someone will discover the real me. And so we try to make ourselves acceptable in the eyes of others. We, we dress for success, sometimes, right? To try to impress the boss or our colleagues or customers, okay? Or we, th- these days, we dress as a mess, which is an alternative, especially among youth people, young people, right? In my day, when we had holes in our jeans, uh, our mothers patched them. And now you buy them with holes in the jeans. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm showing my age, okay? But, you know, we try to conform to acceptable patterns to, to fit in, all the while trying to prove I'm a rebel. It's hilarious, is it not? They all dress the same, trying to be rebellious. I call that conformity. Now, if you want to be the rebel these days, no tattoos, no piercings. That's rebellion. (laughs) And so youth wear their clothes and their hats, and, and they talk in certain ways to be cool. But who defines cool? Where's the objective standard of cool? Who defines cool? Those with whom you want to find acceptance. Right? Because we want to fit in, we want to be accepted. No one likes to be rejected. So fear drives so much of what we do or what we don't do. Because fear is paralyzing. In our, in, uh, our daughter, oldest daughter, senior year of high school, she had her voice recital, and her voice instructor explained to us, the parents, the, the group that was there here in the recital, that it can be very hard for some people to stand up in front of people and sing. Right, Candy? And she explained the reason why is because when you sing, unlike playing the piano or the fiddle or the drums or something else. When you sing, your, your voice is your instrument, so it's very personal. Right? And she explained because of this, when some of the students stood up, first stood up to sing in front of their classmates and their teacher, what happened, Candy? Nothing. <laughs> they were so afraid. They were just paralyzed and they couldn't sing. Now, Ed, Ed Welches, um, someone I used to know years ago, and he's a professor of, of counseling. He teaches counselors. He's an author. You may have read some of his books. And he explains what the problem is here. Three things. He says, we fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. Right? We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. Right? Right? We fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. But here's the thing. 
we would not fear people except for a very real problem, which is what? We are flawed and deficient people. And the shame of those deficiencies causes us to be afraid of being exposed or afraid of being seen as unacceptable as we are. I am unacceptable by myself before God. I'm even unacceptable before my wife, I'm sure, because I'm very deficient. I'm very flawed. And we're so afraid that someone's going to actually understand and discover the truth. So we hide and we protect ourselves. But the real problem is what? Our unacceptability before God. The shame of our sin. Because before God, we are like Laodicea. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And Dr. Welch says, The fear of man is a result of the nakedness that comes from sin. Because, because of sin still present within us, we experience embarrassment, shame, the fear of being exposed and vulnerable. As a result, we try to protect ourselves and avoid the gaze of others. But of course, what's the real problem? The gaze of our divine judge. The gaze of our eternal God, right? And like Adam, we want, we want to hide, we want to protect ourselves from the one who is the judge of all who is a consuming fire. But again, let me go back to the text and hear what the angel says to these common shepherds. Common people in common circumstances do not be afraid. Be afraid no longer because I bring you good news. God's bright, shining glory will no longer bring fear. Why? Because God Himself is sending a Savior, a Savior for sinners, a Savior who will put away sin and shame and hence fear, and you will be before God unacceptable no more. Amen? You will be naked no more because Christ will clothe you in His own righteous garments. That's why Jesus, when the Holy Son of God came to, to common sinners in common circumstances, He said what? The same thing. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid any longer. And the gospel is the good news that we can be in the, be in the presence of our divine judge without fear. Because there is therefore now no condemnation. In Christ Jesus, the divine court itself cannot condemn you if you are clothed in the righteousness of God. And so think about the freedom there is in being accepted by God and not rejected by Him. Because as I said, as we all know, fear is or can be paralyzing. Because fear focuses on the consequence. Fear of flying, fear of uh, small places, fear of the dark, fear of water. How many phobias are there in the world today? Dozens, hundreds, I don't know how many. Okay, But they paralyze and remove joy. Years ago when 
My wife and I were in North Carolina, and I was pastoring a PCA church up there. One of our elders was a, a private pilot, and he had a, he had a little four-seat bonanza, and he would actually take on, he was a salesman, he would take on his business trips while being his pastor, I got to fly with him a good bit. And so he and his wife, who was our organist, by the way, uh, they invited my wife and me to, to fly up to West Virginia to go skiing. Okay, well, that's not something I'm going to ever pass up, right? So we take off from a little airport and fly up to West Virginia and land, and we get our hotel rooms and whatever do we. So we get the next day, we got our ski equipment, we're ready to go out. We go out to the slopes. And, you know, Barbara and I have been skiing for our lifetime, so it's really familiar to us. We jump on the chairlift, go up to the top, the ski back down, and after maybe one more of those, my friend Bill, the pilot, we went away for two days of skiing. He was done. He was done. You know why? Because he's afraid of heights. And he wouldn't go up in the chairlift. I'm like, what? You just flew us here. Are you serious? I have a lot of friends. And actually, I've been told it's actually a common thing for pilots to be afraid of heights. I don't get it. But I'm told it's true. So fear is bondage. Fear paralyzes, right? Because fear involves punishment. But the gospel delivers us from fear because we are accepted and loved by God. It's the perfect love that casts out fear. Ezekiel prophesied of our own day. He said, God's people will dwell in the land securely. He said, with none to make them afraid, you need to fear no more. Because the angel says, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Good news of sin forgiven, of death destroyed, of eternal life, of reconciliation with God. The good news of no more shame. Because unto you this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He himself said at the very beginning of his ministry in the synagogue at Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And think about the ministry of Christ you know it well. Think of the, the lepers who were cleansed. Think of the paralytics who were given strength. The demoniacs who were set free. The prostitutes who became pure. The blind who were given sight. And the greedy who were set free of their addictions. Is this not great news of a great joy? Joy, fear is cast out, and joy comes to replace it. Joy replaces fear. Now, joy is not the same thing as happiness. We're we're perhaps more familiar with happiness. Happiness is really an emotional response to pleasant circumstances, things that we consider to be, that was really a a good event, or maybe it was just a good movie or a good piece of music I enjoyed, a good concert, and I'm just really happy right now, okay? Or maybe when your kids finally obey you. I don't know. Something like that. And, uh, but joy is more this inner heart attitude unrelated to any ex- external circumstance. And the joy we receive in the gospel comes from Jesus 
himself. Do you know that? It's actually his joy which he shares with us. It's really an incredible truth. This, this good news of a great joy is because we're united with Christ and brought into the fellowship of his joy. That's what he said in places like John 15. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How will our joy not be full if the Lord's joy is in us? In John 17, verse 13, but, I am, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So in the gospel, Jesus imparts to us his joy, the joy he has in being an intimate relationship with his Father becomes our joy. It's his joy made full in ourselves. Think about that. The steadfast, unchanging joy of the Godhead becomes our possession in Christ. And we see that in, in, in the people Jesus impacted. His gospel ministry turned their mourning into dancing. Oops, I can't say that in a Presbyterian church. Uh, turned their mourning into rejoicing, into celebration. Okay? Think of the, think of the widow in Cain whose, whose only son died. Only son died. And Jesus said, don't weep. And he raised her son and gave him back to it. What, what, imagine that mom. What, what incredible joy. What incredible joy. And so Jesus gives joy because he brings his people into the presence of the knowledge and love of God who has perfect and constant joy. And that's why, at least I think that's why, Christmas celebrations have always been times of merriment. How do we greet one another? Merry Christmas! Joyful Christmas! Because the message of Christmas, the message of the coming of Christ, is good news of a great joy. It's not because of snow or presents or trees or whatever. These things may bring us joy, but it's because of Christ. Christ and the good news. Well, some might say, well, you know what? That's fine, but it's not for me. I'm just a nobody. Uh, it's not for me. But notice, you're wrong. Notice it says, for all the people. See, the gospel is not elitist. It's not for the rich and famous. Who did the angel appear to? Common nobodies, low-class shepherds at nighttime in common circumstances. The gospel is particularly for the, for the poor and needy. Jesus, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. James said, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? There is no one who is disqualified. Eternal life is a free gift to anyone, anyone who will come humbling himself or herself, repenting of sin and coming in faith. But there's no sin, no blemish, no weakness, no fault will keep you from God if you repent. If you come saying, save me, O Lord Jesus, 
because it's all of Christ. It's not of our works. It's not of our good looks. It's not of, of our merit. It's not of anything we do. No one can say, that's nice, but it's not for me. I wish it were for me. It is! If you will come, if you will humble yourself, if you will believe the gospel. So, dear ones, be afraid no longer because Christ the Lord is the Savior of sinners. He covers our sin and hence our shame with His perfect garments of perfect righteousness. No one's beyond the help of the omnipotent Savior. No one's situation is too helpless, too desperate, too bad. No one, anyone can find life because He is the Savior of sinners who came to give life, to deliver from fear, to bring us into the fellowship of His joy, and to bring you and me, in a word, into the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And is that not good news of a great joy? Amen. Oh, Lord God, forgive us of our apathy at times, our indifference. We often can even be callous to the good news. It's something we've heard long ago. Uh, many times we celebrate Christmas once a year, and we tend to focus more on the, the circumstances of the season rather than the reality of the coming of Christ as a Savior of sinners, bringing great joy because we're delivered from fear and shame and all sin and all bondage. And we're given this perfect, incredible love. Oh, Lord God, praise you for Christ. Praise you for the hope that all have who come to you in his name. Give us tremendous joy, but true joy, that, uh, that joy which we have, which belongs to Christ, which he imparts to us this season and always. But let us live as befits believers, understanding the gospel, in Jesus' name, amen.